My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we are now in overtime. That is the second half of the program where we are online only, where we have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors, and we continue to yell about labor. So, going to have a good time. 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. Let us know if you're a UAW member in the chat, and we will try to pull your area code. Uh, appreciate everybody tuning in. Infinite content in the chat says, I just tagged a TVLR in a post on Twitter about a brawl started by somebody shouting racial slurs at a UAW picket line. Guess, wow. <laughs> guess they didn't learn from Montgomery. <laughs> I guess not. I don't see that in my um, in the mentions, though. I'm not sure if... Uh, I'm not sure what the deal is there and you know i'm not on twitter yeah. or x or whatever fast eddie uh nyc mta local 100 in solidarity keith smith says ford local 3000 in the building thank you infinite content septa workers which is the mass transit agency in philly metro are expected to go on strike in november uh very very cool fast eddie sean fain is the fighting irish go uaw indeed um Let's see. Lenny says solidarity to all workers. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Got some good conversation about the uh, police incident. Yeah. Uh, lots that always generates a lot of conversation. Yeah. Uh, it generates pushback too. Yeah. We get pushback from that. I'm just going to let y'all know that some of our uh listeners may not be aware but you know we've had criticism from mm -hmm. some corners that we're too tough on the police yeah we're too mean to the police yeah um that we're just we're being very unfair uh so, so if just... you want to be uh if you want to help us be able to maintain our stance about um you know i mean i think i think telling the truth about what the you know what police are doing then you know support the show uh, so <laughs> support yeah <the> show. absolutely <laughs> um keep us on the air because keep uh, us on the air yeah. um yeah i think well you know we're joking but there's a principle stand there and mm -hmm. um i agree with you in your framing that um i care about freedom yeah care about liberty and that's important to me. And so um, that's how I will proceed. Absolutely. Um, I'm just trying. There's a lot of comments. want to make sure that I uh, pull any out. And I appreciate all the conversation in the chat. Also, uh, we have, okay, we've got uh, the good, a good like to viewer ratio. Um, 
So let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and, and pull uh, infinite content on the air. He has called in from a two six seven area code. We appreciate his contributions in the chat as always and uh, on the phones. Um, let's go ahead and bring him on the air. Infinite content. What you got for us today? Hey Adam and Jacob, how are y'all doing today? Good. Hey brother, I doing was, well. I was going to talk about. Um, some of the labor issues, but uh, this whole thing with the uh, co- uh, cops assaulting the band director is, is like uh, really irk, irk me uh, because I was just reading about a story about uh, Baton Rouge cops having a black site where they were ter- uh, terrorizing and beating on um, alleged suspects. But wow, he's a band that- director. Mm. He's that a band reminds director. me of the Chicago black site. Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking that. that that's what I was thinking uh, yeah. when I first saw. I'm like, so fuck the police um, and cops ain't shit. Uh, and if you support cops and um, and them violating people's rights, then you ain't shit either. And I, I I'll stand. That's a hill I'll die on. Mm. But he's he's in a he's playing music. That's a the very definition of a First Amendment protected activity. You would think. Yeah. You would think. And in um, black co- black schools and HBCUs, the band is more important sometimes than the games itself. I was mm. going to say that, yeah. People show up to watch the band more than the team, frankly. Mm. I, I Literally, I'm going to games where I don't get there till the end of the first, the second, the end of the first quarter. Stay watch the game. Stay to watch the second quarter. Watch the band performances. And leave in the middle of the third quarter. And maybe if I stay, if it's interesting, I'll watch the game. And I'll stay around to the end of the game. Because I know the band's going to play for like 10, 15 minutes from extra music. So I get my uh, money's worth. Because the band has an integral part of the university community. Mm-hmm. Right. But tell him, he, and he said, look, this is our last song. All he had to do was say, yeah. okay, it's your last song. But he saw some uppity Negro who wasn't. Uh, kowtowing to the police authority and decided that he had to uh, go ahead and violate his rights. Because that's a First Amendment right. That's a, um, that's a probably 14th, uh, possibly 5th, and um, Fourth Amendment violations. And now the city's going to have to pay out for those cops' actions. Mm. And he's yeah. also radicalized. That entire band, everyone in that band and everyone in those stands were radicalized by them abusing that band director. Well, They're going to uh, uh, have permanent negative views of it. But uh, to get to some labor news, so you all, did you all see how um, UAW uh, outboxed the victory? Yeah, we're going to get to that here in a bit about, like, they caught the big three off guard. Um, they made they preparations like, uh, in the wrong way. They, they played them like a piano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now it's like now they got mm-hmm. lots of um, materials that they moved to the wrong spots. Now they can't move because the teamsters aren't moving anything, and probably the rail workers uh, might not move any uh, big three stuff either. So they they just uh, cost themselves needless um, losses in productivity. Yeah, that level of growth mismanagement should cause the uh, C-suite their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And Sam Cedar and I appreciate uh, the call. Infinite content. Thanks for calling in. Uh, we'll talk later. Yeah, appreciate you, brother. And uh, Sam Cedar had a good point on the majority report last week about this. You know, the 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 
um, the stand-up strike strategy, you know, the way that it caught them off guard, um, it really kind of puts to puts to bed the lie, you know, that auto workers are just automatons who would be useless but for their maestros pulling the strings and directing production, and you know, these people don't have minds and they're not agents and all of this stuff. Um, they're, uh, they would be useless without their betters in management, right? And yet, uh, you know, the union showed that not only do they know, you know, production as well or better than the bosses do, but they even knew what the bosses would do if they thought that this production was going to shut down, and so they leaked it out. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, it really, you know, Play like a, played them like a fiddle, um, and, and but you know auto workers they're not they're not smart enough to think for themselves and create strategies like that. You know something else I want to talk about um, on, on that on that line. I don't know if you wanted to get to this today, but a little bit about the media and like the way the media is sort of portraying the strike. Um, mm. I don't I don't know if you wanted to get into that right now, but. I just had some thoughts about it, you know, uh, with the way media is framing some of this mm-hmm. coverage. Um, I try to avoid mainstream media, uh, especially after the 2020 election. Like, I felt like that was just, it pushed me over the edge. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't need more corporate media in my life. It is not good for me. I'm not better informed. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm worse informed in some cases. Um it does just increase my blood pressure and expose me to all sorts of advertising that I don't want to see. Uh, and so I try to avoid corporate media, but I've been trying to kind of keep my eyes on it the last couple of weeks just to see what mm-hmm. they're saying about this strike. Right. This is the biggest right. biggest labor struggle happening in the country right now. Um, you know, they can't not talk about it and they are mm-hmm. talking about it. So I've been interested in it. And, um, you know, it's just been as always, so frustrating to see. Yeah. Um, and I hope very clearly bullshit. Like, I hope that it's bullshit on a level that folks are really, you know, seeing through mm-hmm. it. Uh, <clears throat> and it seems to me, based on the fact that UAW's support is, like, monumental across the country, across right. the working class, seems to me most workers are kind of realizing that the media is selling a bunch of bullshit. Um you know, there's false framing about like labor versus the environment, right? And trying to portray the UAW as if they are an obstacle to the EV industry, which is not at all what is happening. That's just not true at all. Right. Any implications to that effect are lies. Is divide and conquer, right? They, you know, so they're hoping that you know maybe that can bleed out some support among liberal types and moderate types. Um, And then, of course, there's the right-wing framing that we're seeing from Donald Mm -hmm. Trump and from those types, uh, you know, who are trying to throw some token support to workers, vague support to workers while bashing their their institutions, the unions themselves uh, and their leaders. And, of course... In more engaging in divide and conquer and all the media is really trying to make this about Biden and Trump and Biden's climate agenda. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't give a damn about Biden's right. climate agenda when we're talking about this struggle. OK, it's like, come on now. 
come on now. It's it's really it's just so infuriating. Everything is about the you know political horse race mm. and watching the numbers of 2024. You know who's gaining, who's losing. Right. Uh, what does this mean for Biden and his re-election campaign? But what does it mean for the fucking workers involved? Right. What about them? Yeah. What about all the neighbors of those workers right. who are counting on those workers being able to shop at the local stores and you know eat at the local restaurants? Uh, and participate in the community and, you know, have time to go to a PTA meeting after school and be involved in their kids' education, uh, to go to a town hall, to go to a city council meeting. When the fuck do these kids, these workers ever have time to do stuff like that? Because UAW members are being forced to work, in some cases, 90 days straight Right. in the year 2023. It's obscene. And so, uh, yeah, I just had to share that that uh haven't been super impressed with the media coverage um it's you know needlessly divisionary mm -hmm. and um i think often obscures what's really going on um and a lot of it is company talk about yeah how will this impact the economy how will this impact you as a consumer will you pay more you know and somewhere down in the article or later in the segment, they'll kind of casually mention like, oh, yeah, labor cost is only like 5% of the car. You know, oh, by mm -hmm. the way. Uh, but now you better watch out, you consumer. Right. Like, okay, well, guess what? Most of these workers, just like most of the working class, can hardly afford to buy these vehicles in the first fucking place. Yeah. Okay. So, and we couldn't go get a car loan right now because the Federal Reserve has jacked up interest rates trying to squ uh, squeeze labor's, you know, power in the market. So, you know, there we go. There's a there's the context that's being left out by a lot of corporate media. Corporate media that's entangled with the big three as advertisers, uh, and of course they're Wall Street masters. Yeah, and. You know, I there were some good clips that were going around on Twitter uh, this this week that um, now I wish I had pulled, but I had already pulled so many clips. But, you know, there was one in particular that uh, a reporter asked Sean Fain, are you denying that this will impact the consumers in any way or are you denying that this is going to increase the cost of vehicles? And, you know, Sean Fain was like, what is increasing the cost of vehicles is corporate greed. You know, he right. pointed out, he, he gave them the facts. They've increased car prices 35% in the last four years and only increased our wages 6%. And our wages only account for 5% of the cost of the car. So absolutely not. They could pay us double and still and still make billions of dollars of profit. Um, and, you know, so that he is fantastic about staying on message and beating back these corporate talking points. Um, but it is absolutely, it's very frustrating seeing this kind of stuff. And, you know, there was one that I saw that said something about how, you know, uh, a tw you know, the companies need to come further than a 20% raise, maybe a 30 or a little bit less than a 30% raise, but certainly not a 40% raise. And all a 30% raise does at the end of four years is get you back to 2019, basically. That's it, right? Because we've had 20% inflation since 2019. 
20% inflation, and we can just guesstimate 2 to 3% inflation for the next four years. So that's going to be, you know, at minimum 8%. A minimum of 8% inflation. And so what are you looking at at the end of this four-year contract in 2027? You're looking at about 28 to 30% inflation from 2019 minimum. Minimum. So a 30% raise, all that does is keep you even. And they're talking about like, yeah, you know, a 30% raise would be really good. Like that would be magnanimous of the corporations. And in fact, 30% is, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the least that the corporations can do. And, you know, if you, cu if you couple that 30% with all these other things or with a lot of these other things that the, uh, that the UAW is pushing for, then, you know, I would be willing to accept that as a UAW member, but it's not my place to say what UAW members should accept or not. But, you know, I, I think that if you start talking about a 30% raise with COLA, with reinstated pension, with the ending of two tiers, uh, with a shorter work week, with job security, you know, that starts to, you know, that starts to add up to ultimately a little bit over a 30% wage increase, um, you know, when you account for everything. And so, uh, but, but, you know, the idea that, oh, 30% raise, that would be like magnanimous. That's the kind of stuff that they're putting out there. Um, and, of course, uh, there's, the, there's the divide, uh, the divide and conquer kind of tactics between the auto workers and the consumers, which are really kind of the silliest of any of the tactics that, that the corporate media is trying to push because, because of the reasons that we just laid out. Labor costs increased 6% over the last four years. Car costs 35%. Um, <laughs> and so the idea and and labor costs are only 5% of the vehicles. You know, so the idea that labor costs are driving car costs is just is so 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 silly. It's, you know, I can't imagine anybody still believing that after they hear that, which makes me think less of the people in the media that are pushing this because they have to know that and they're still pushing that. You know, it's one thing for some, you know, uh, jag off in the comment section to say that, you know, he's just an idiot and he doesn't know better. Right. But, <laughs> but people on, uh, you know, on the TV, on the television, right. Saying this kind of stuff. It's crazy. It's like not excusable. But the one that, uh, you know, I think is probably more powerful is the division of the auto workers against other workers saying things like, oh, you know, you would uh, taxpayers would love to get a raise to account for inflation. And look at these people. They're demanding a raise above inflation and you don't even get a raise matching inflation. They're greedy. And in some way, them getting a raise above inflation takes from you that's kind of what they're trying to make you believe and it's absolutely not only is it not true it is the opposite of the truth because here's the thing markets exist <laughs> markets exist and if there is an employer offering higher wages then what does that do that puts pressure on other employers to increase their wages to uh compete with the high wage union employer um, right. so not only is it true, is it not true, not only is it not true that UAW members winning and winning big in this contract campaign, which it looks like by all accounts, they're on track to do. It is not true that it takes from you. It actually is directly beneficial to you. And so, you know, the, you're absolutely right to call out the, 
the media coverage of this, it's been very, very frustrating. Um, and, uh, and obviously all power to, uh, the UAW members. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, they are fighting the good fight and, uh, appreciate them doing that. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I think we just got to continue to have conversations with folks and educate folks. Like I had some good conversations this week with folks about this, this struggle with fellow workers. I had good conversations and I think that's really important to counteract the propaganda that's being pushed out mm -hmm. there by corporate media. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 844-899-TVLR is the phone number, 844-899-8857. If you want to call in and share your thoughts about what's going on, in particular if you are a UAW member on strike or still at work, love to hear uh, how you're feeling about everything. So let's take a look at some reactions. We didn't really get like media reactions uh, to the UAW strike, but we got some... We got some political reactions to the strike, and we got some uh, internet show reactions right. to the strike. And and if you're curious, like for some more media criticism, I would say citations needed mm. and um, counterspin both talked about this a little bit over the past week or so. Um, and so, yeah, I would check those out if you're you're interested in more on that. Yep. So uh, let's start with Tim Scott. Tim Scott, you know, so on the range of reactions to the strike i think the worst has been tim scott and i think the best has been like a bernie sanders and so the worst you're gonna see and and then bernie sanders at the best not only saying i support the uaw in their fight for a fair contract you know not only just saying that generally but like saying specifically their demands that the union is pushing for he supports like that's kind of the best thing that yeah. you can do that's the that's the top level like not only do i support in general abstractly but they're asking for this this and that and they deserve it and right. they should get it right? and i'm gonna try to tell other people why they deserve it and yes. encourage them to join uh -huh. us as well and i'm gonna show up and right he had, a, he had an op-ed yep. in fox mm -hmm. which you know i think that's important to try to reach folks and so yeah, uh, you know, I appreciate that. And, you know, that's the kind of leadership that, you know, I would love to see more elected officials take on, you know, yeah. these kind of issues when workers are standing together fighting for what's right and standing up for themselves. Yeah. So uh, here is Tim Scott's first reaction. This was actually happened before last show, and uh, we didn't have time to talk about it. But then he said something else stupid this week. So we're just going to play both of them. Here's his first reaction to uh, the UAW's demands, in particular, uh, their demand for a four-day work week. One of my buddies, a uh, prayer partner of mine, spent his entire career without a college degree working at Newcore Steel. And their pay structure took him over six figures several years because he got paid for his work. The harder he worked, not only did he get luckier, but he got more money. Uh, and and that's, that's a recipe, it's a formula that we should be using all across the country, not just in South Carolina, but all across the nation. And we're watching today uh, on every screen around the country, we're seeing the, the UAW uh, fight for more benefits and less hours working, more pay and fewer days on the job. It's, it's, it's a disconnect from work. And we have to find a way to encourage and inspire people to go back to work. 
And that's one of the things that, as your president, we would have. We would have a nationwide, sea to shining sea, focus on you pick the type of work, but if you're able-bodied, you're going to work. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty gross. Yeah, not a, not a fan. Gross. Not a fan. Uh, Y'all, let me know in the comments if you actually heard that or not. Because, yeah, looks, uh, looks, looks like people heard that. I didn't hear that. I don't know why I didn't hear that, but uh, looks like people heard that. And it's just so so gross. I've got a prayer buddy. Oh, uh, well, you have a well. Golly gee, that means that people should be poor because you have a prayer buddy. I mean, just so, so, so gross. And, you know, this is this is the exact same thing that people said when, you know, workers were pushing for the 12-hour for the workday, for the 10-hour workday, for the 8-hour right. workday, for the 5-day work week. There's always these There's, people talking yes. about why we deserve less. And if... And it, it is just untenable when you understand that productivity has completely uh, ha has gone through the roof while our hours at work have increased. Right. There's just no reason for that. I, all thought, the, all I thought they wanted to make America great again. Yeah. And uh, there was a time in this country when productivity and wages more or less tracked with each other. Yeah. Now there were not to say that there weren't other issues in this country, but I mean, good lord, obviously there were. Um, but it's not like you know some far off utopian idea that productivity and, and wage gains would match. It's it's realistic. It's something that happened in this country. Uh, but you know, folks like him think that it's it's okay. It's right. okay that uh, we have inequality skyrocketing. Yeah. Lenny Powers in the comments says, Tim Scott got soft palms, I can tell. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't doubt that. And and that's another thing that makes it so frustrating to me, seeing people like this. Politicians. I mean, could you imagine a worse person to talk about the importance of a good work ethic than a politician? I mean, holy crap. And... The and this also Sean Hannity echoed that the other day on the news when he was talking to Tim Scott. He was trying to get Tim Scott to kind of come off it a little bit. He was like, ah, you know, but and but what he was trying to do was try to say like, oh, look, this is all Biden's fault. You know, you should support the workers because they're fighting against Biden, which is obviously like we said earlier, it's just a, kind of a silly thing. But uh, uh, <clears throat> Sean Hannity also lambasted the uh, the call for more freedom. That's what a call for a shorter work week is. It is a call for, for more freedom from work. More freedom to do what you will. More freedom from the tyranny of the workplace. Okay? More freedom. More liberty. That's what that is. He lambasted that. And uh, in his lambasting of it, he said that I work 90 hours a week. Sean Hannity does. Uh, so... Of course, obviously, first of all, that's bullshit. Like, there's absolutely no shot Sean Hannity clocks 90 hours in a week. No shot. But then, even the hours that he does work, that he would be, like, on the clock, 
are just simply not work to the rest of us uh, people with actual jobs. Uh, you know, yeah, but things that he does like, uh, you know, I would bet so much money that he counts as part of his job going on uh, golf trips and fraternizing with uh, Fox News advertisers and politicians and all this kind of stuff because he's making connections and all of this kind of networking and all that kind of stuff. And so he's got he's probably got like his lunches on the clock, his dinners on the clock, his golf trips are on the clock. When he's listening to other dumbasses on the radio, he's on the clock. Right. I mean, all this kind of stuff. That's what he's counting is on the clock. And I would honestly I don't believe that even if you count all of that, he hits 90 hours in a week. But, you know, the work. Yeah, I'll just say this. Uh, He's paid to be full of shit and he probably is full of shit at least 90 hours a week. So, you know, in that sense, maybe there's some truth to it. (sighs) Yeah. So, so gross. And so here is what. uh, So that that was kind of his opening salvo in his war against workers asking for more of the profits that they're creating. Tim Scott. Uh, Here's what he said last week I think Ronald Reagan gave us a Ronald Reagan gave us a great example when federal employees decided they were going to strike he said you strike you're fired simple concept to me to the extent that we could use that once again absolutely the second thing we I would do though is very important this is a probably not a well-known fact the first thing part of the challenge that we have today with President Biden is, and I don't mean this to be disingenuous, I mean this to be sincere. I'm not sure if the words are bought and paid for, but it certainly he has been uh, leased by the, by the unions. And I say that because the first bill he passed, you, y'all remember the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package? Yeah. That only had 1% for COVID vaccines? Mm-hmm. It had $86 billion, I believe, for union pensions. Because they keep making these deals, and as a result of the deal, they promise too much, deliver too little, and the taxpayers pick up the tab. Just super gross. So, I mean, you know, one at a time, the first thing that he said is that Ronald Reagan set a good example when he fired the air traffic controllers and basically declared open season on working people in the United States. If you'll remember, if you look at like any chart, (coughs) any chart that tracks anything good in this country, it all went down (laughs) starting in 1980, (laughs) starting in 1970 something. Escalating in 1980, including wages, um, you know, hours worked, number, uh, you know, amount of money going to the one percent, all of this stuff. It all just goes to hell starting in 1980, and in large part because of Ronald Reagan's declaring open season on working people, and uh, in his um, saying that Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. That's a good example. Quote, if you strike, you're fired. Sounds simple to me. Something like that, he said. And so in that, uh, the UAW filed an unfair labor practice against Tim Scott in his position as an employer for Tim Scott for America, uh, saying nice. that um, that his comments, if you strike, you're fired, could be construed as a... Uh, as a threat against his own private sector employees who have a federal right to strike 
enshrined in the National Labor Relations Act. And so uh, that's true. Yeah. So that was uh, incredibly cool. Incredibly cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I, I'm I'm glad they did that because yeah. they should. Uh, yeah. You know, if nothing else, just to help educate folks on the fact that you have rights. Um, are they well protected <laughs> rights? No. Are they sufficient rights? No. Right. But you have some rights, and it's important that we know them and exercise them, and support each other in doing so. Absolutely. And then uh, his claim that he has been that Biden has been leased by the unions. Oh, were it so. Uh, that would be incredibly based. And he's done a lot of good things for unions, but uh, he could always do more. And the idea that a Republican is talking about somebody being bought is just so funny to me. Do you know who his top two donors are, Adam? I don't. I mean, let's see. It could be Big Pharma. It could be the fossil fuel industry. It could be Wall Street. Um Let's think of some of the other evil forces in the world. Yeah. Who else? The number one donor to um, Tim Scott over like the last five years or something was Apollo Global Management. Oh, wow. Which is uh, private equity vultures. The second was Goldman Sachs. So, you know, I mean, look, there's like, there's the difference, right? Do you, even if you don't agree with every single thing that a union advocates for politically, I don't agree with everything, every single thing that a union advocates for politically. But here's the, you know, would you rather your politician be bought or leased by unions, which are definitionally... <laughs> organizations of working people or Goldman Sachs and Apollo Financial Global Management Group, like two of the most evil organizations in the world. I mean, uh, the choice is super obvious. And Biden's Butch Lewis Act, which saved union pension funds, is incredibly good, incredibly based, uh, saving the pensions of thousands of union members whose employers mismanagement of the pension funds uh, made them go bankrupt or made them not be able to pay out as much as they were promised. Uh, it's very good, actually. And we should pay for that with taxes on the rich. And there you go. So that's been Tim Scott's. And like I yeah. said, he's kind of like the literal worst. Uh, and we've got a caller on the line. Yeah. So before we get to uh, some of these other reactions to the strike, let's go ahead and get to that caller. We have a caller from a 571 area code. Let's go ahead and bring them on the air. 571 area code, what is your name and where are you calling from? Hi. Um, hi, guys. Thank you for taking my call. This is Jules. I'm calling from Northern Virginia. Jules from Northern Virginia. You know, What's on your mind? Work. Yes. Quick question. I have two questions. One, um, where is the union fighting against child laborers working in meat packing? Do you think they could do more? Um, and my second question is, how can unions make a lot more inroads 
in developing their strategy in right-to-work states. I'll hang up and I'll take your call. I'll take your response on the other side. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thanks great for the questions. Question. Yeah, uh, really great questions there. Um, yeah, appreciate so, that. Yeah, uh, so you know, on the child labor front, um, you know, unions have obviously been some of the groups that have been uh, fighting against the loosening of child labor laws in states across the country where they have labor laws that are stricter than the federal standards, um, and <clears throat> um, unions have also been. Uh, some of the uh, unions and like worker center groups have been some of the people at the forefront of fighting child labor in poultry plants and fighting immigrant exploitation in poultry plants and things like this. And so that's something that unions have been active in doing. Uh, but could unions do more? Uh, you know, I think the 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 answer to that is is pretty much always going to be yes. Um, and especially like the UFCW, who has the highest. Uh, you know who has the highest membership rate of any union, as far as I can tell, in like a, a meat processing plant in the meat processing plant industry. And, um, you know, some of these things like the 16 year old who died in Mississippi, uh, that child died in a UFCW plant. Right. Um, and as far as I can tell, the UFCW has still not put out a statement on that, uh, which is really kind of bizarre to me. <clears throat> but, and so I think the UFCW in particular could do more. Um, but uh, the UFC, or, or, but but unions in general have have been, you know, obviously kind of fighting a lot of this stuff, and uh, and and doing kind of what they can where they can. But but obviously more can always be done. The yeah, second, absolutely. And I, I just I want to point it to uh, the Alabama, the Alabama Coalition for Community Benefits, uh, and there was a letter that came out recently. I know the New York Times covered it. But basically a coalition of community groups and labor unions and civil rights groups mm. uh, that gathered together and demanded Hyundai raise their standards mm -hmm. in wake <clears throat> of child labor scandals and, you know, deaths on the job uh, that we've seen in their supply chain and within, you know, their subsidiaries. Uh, so I know Jobs to Move America was really involved with that, uh, Greater Birmingham Ministries um, and several unions as well. Uh, and so, you know, there's definitely conversations that are happening between labor groups and labor adjacent, you know, labor supporting groups. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's something that obviously we're not doing enough or we wouldn't see this trend. Uh, right. And so, you know, I think it's something we're going to have to really, really work on. And um, it's not an issue I know a ton about in terms of the solutions, but um you know, I know one thing that would help in some of these cases is protecting the immigrant workforce mm. um, who are scared to cooperate with authorities for good reason, right? Um, and so the more we can protect workers from retaliation, to include retaliation against them uh, through ICE and Department of Homeland Security and other agencies, right? Workers have to be comfortable reporting abuse and reporting violations of the law and like you know we always say if you see something say something but sometimes that's easier said than done right there's a real yeah. risk 
and and we've got to do more to protect them and that's where you know i think the government can do a lot more uh to step in and protect uh, but yeah i think it's it's a challenge of our time and it's a reflection of our times that child labor is this crisis yet again in our country and uh, it's a, it's a big task in front of labor to really address this the second question was, uh, how can unions kind of uh, adapt their strategy to um, make more inroads in right-to-work states? And, you know, I think that really the biggest thing to do is is just to do it. To organize, um, to yeah. have an to organizing invest. mindset and organizing strategy and, and organizing investment, yes. Yeah, and I just think that there's not really enough investment in organizing generally. Uh, but especially in the South, because uh, people perceive, and you know, not unreasonably, that uh, Southern workplaces are more difficult to unionize. And so, you know, I think that the biggest thing is just going to be going out there and trying and investing and taking advantage of the momentum that the labor movement has right now and the public support that we have. Um, but then, you know, there is better and worse ways to do it, and you know. Uh, so the thing is to try to do it the better way. Try to have a strong internal organizing committee that you have a base of support, build up a base of support in the plant, try to build up that support before you go public, um, try to you know uh, uh, inoculate people against what the boss is going to say, against the boss's lies, um, build solidarity, escalate uh, actions, don't go all in at once, you know, let people start small and build confidence um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, but but really, I think the biggest thing is just to go go and do it. Yeah, I think unions have to try. And um, for uh, unfortunately, you know, as we've seen the decline in unions over the past 40 years or so, um, we've seen a lot of capacity kind of shrivel up and we've mm -hmm. seen like you said some unions really kind of let organizing slip by the wayside uh you've got to invest in organizers you have to invest in relationships and build relationships uh in these environments mm -hmm. and you know some unions are used to friendly environments where there's agency fees involved and they don't really have to work that hard to get members right but in a right to work state you have to ask people to join and I know that sounds really basic, but it's not for some people. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, some folks have to learn that, yeah, you actually mm -hmm. have to go out and talk to folks and listen to them and ask them, you know, how they feel. And then you have to ask them to sign that card, to sign that form and make that effort. Um, and, you know, one of the other things I want to point out, I think, along this question is I think unions have to coordinate better. And collaborate mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. There's got to be, you know, more dialogue between labor groups and labor adjacent groups. And I think that also connects to expanding coalitions with the community. And we've been seeing some, you know, some good things like this Alabama Coalition for Community Benefits. That's a great thing. And that's something we need more of. Um, the more we can get labor groups talking to other facets of the community, Right. It's all by and large working people just in different spaces and different places. And, and we got to increase the dialogue and collaboration there to, to be stronger. And then the last thing I'll say is I think there's got to be a more concerted push 
on the media front mm. and the education <clears throat> front because we have to counteract century plus of propaganda right a century plus of propaganda and and even more you know even deeper roots rooted propaganda in terms of white supremacy and patriarchy and other means to divide and conquer the working class uh but you know anti-union propaganda in particular has been um spread far and wide in right to work environments particularly down here in the south and I think you've got to make a concerted effort to build positive image in the community. Organizing new workers is the most important thing you can be doing, but there are other things you can be doing alongside that, you know, building the co community coalitions. And I think having a media presence, that's part of why we do what we do in a place like Alabama, because we think it's important that folks hear a, another message. Uh, we think it's important that folks hear from workers and not just management. And we think it's important that folks hear messages of solidarity and collective organization and people power. That's important. Folks need to hear it because they're not getting it from corporate media. They're not getting it from right wing media. They're being misinformed. Uh, they're being fed divisive nonsense uh, that is really destructive to, to solidarity. So I think unions can do more yeah. to to push back in the public sphere to take advantage of media, to get earned media. I mean, while I'm on a roll here, I'm just going to go ahead and say that, you know, there are unions out there who, uh, when offered good press, mm. won't take it. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, you explain that to me. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, we talked earlier about union leaders and, and the sacrifices they make. And, but... The most important thing about a union leader is its membership. The membership. Are are you engaged? Are you pushing this leader in the right direction? Um, are you holding them accountable when you need to? Um, you know, if your union is not out front and building a, pos a, a positive image in the community, um, you've got some work to do. And I, and I think we've all got to be doing that work to capture this moment when 71% of the American public supports unions, 75% of the American public supports striking workers, and 90% of young people support labor. 90% of people under 30. Like, that's probably more than, like, pizza's approval rating. Right. That is wild. That is, you know, an indication of the tremendous potential in front of us if labor can get its act together and really take advantage of it. Eight four four eight nine nine TVLR is the number. Eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. Let's take a look at Nikki Haley. She's another presidential candidate and another ghoul and another anti-worker uh, cretin. She has also commented on the UAW strike. Uh, not quite as bad as Tim Scott, but still. Very, 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 very bad. Let's listen to what she told uh, Neil Cavuto on Fox News. 
Well, I think that's uh, it tells you that when you have the most pro-union president and he touts that he is um, emboldening the unions, this is what you get. And I'll tell you who pays for it is the taxpayers. You know, here, from what I understand, the union is asking for a 40 percent raise. Um, you know, the companies have come back with a 20 percent raise. I think any of the taxpayers would love to have a 20 percent raise and think that's great. But, you know, the problem is this is going to we're all going to suffer from this. This is going to cost things to go up. And, you know, this is going to last a while. But, you know, when you have a president that's constantly saying, go union, go union, this is what you get. The unions get emboldened and then they start asking for things that, you know, that companies have a tough time doing. And so I don't think government should get involved in this. These are private sector matters. But I do think the tone of how a president talks about unions and how a president emboldens them does play a role in this. And we're seeing what Biden has done play a role in this. It's, it's, you're going to suffer. You are going to suffer. Right. You, the listener, the taxpayer. The taxpayers somehow, you, even you, though the UAW employees are not government workers. You're going to suffer and it's Joe Biden's fault. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, really kind of wild stuff there. Um, but that, I think, is, you know, part, I, I mean, I think she's partially right because I do think that, when you have a president that even just the act of even just the act of verbalizing support for unions and saying that they're good and, and all of this kind of stuff and saying that that he supports the, their strike and now Joe Biden is even going to the picket line on Tuesday. I don't know if you'd seen that, Adam. It just came out yesterday, but he is he's planning to go and walk the picket line with UAW members. In uh, and I think that's responding to public pressure. Yeah. Absolutely. That obviously wasn't his first reaction. Right. It was not his first reaction. Um, but, you know, he has been saying, you know, lots of good things about unions. And I, and, and I think that, you know, that has an effect on people. Right. They see the president of the United States says unions are good. Uh, you know, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe uh, my boss is wrong when he says that all of these bad things are going to happen to me if I form a union. Uh, you know, I, I think she's absolutely right. It has an impact. And, uh, you know, I just think that uh, it's a good impact when workers are emboldened to ask for more. Um, and Joe Biden very smartly used her words and cut an ad based on it. Let's play that. When you have a president that's constantly saying, go union, go union, this is what you get. The unions get emboldened and then they start asking for things. The first bill he passed, that 86 billion dollars for union pensions. This president clearly does prioritize union jobs and he's made very clear here that union workers deserve more, that their pay increases have not come close to the success and the money that all of these auto companies have enjoyed. So. Interesting. Yeah, kind yeah. of leaning into it. Yeah. Um, you know, I would argue it's probably a little uh, pumped up, <laughs> his, his pro-union yeah. record. Uh, you know, I, I don't forget about the rail workers. Mm -hmm. I don't forget about Warrior Met. Um, I, I don't forget about the grand scale of the problems that we're facing. Um, and so, you know, I'll take some table scraps because I'm hungry, but yeah. uh, that's not a nourishing meal. And just, But just what he has done is enough to send people like this into a tailspin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so you see in the, the wild overreaction, um, you know, imagine if we got even half of what we deserved right. from an administration. But, um, you know, 
it's smart politically, I think, mm-hmm. because 75% support the UAW. That's a hell of a lot more people support uh, Joe Biden yeah. and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck <laughs> Schumer. <laughs> right. I mean, let's check who's got the higher approval rating. Exactly. So um, I think it's it's about time that uh, unions be strong <clears throat> enough and popular enough that we can bully Drew Barrymore and Joe Biden into mm-hmm. uh, caving to our pressure. Yeah. Um, I think that's... That's a pretty good deal. Uh, that's a good sign. And, um, exactly. you know, I think we're going to see more and more of this where politicians from both parties are going to, you know, be pandering mm-hmm. uh, in their own ways. Right. And we're going to have to be, you know, sophisticated in not falling for nonsense uh, because we'll see it coming from both parties. Um, we'll see it happening. But, you know, all in all, if we're powerful enough that the politicians are wanting to chase behind us mm-hmm. and kind of get in on it, uh, maybe that means we can win something. Yep. And, and that's that's where it's important is where we can actually, you know, get real material support and changes because, damn it, we really need it. Yep. We've got a caller on the line from an 818 area code. Let's go ahead and bring them on the line. 818 area code, what is your name and where are you calling from? Adam, Jacob, this is Lenny Powers from the West Coast. Lenny Powers from the West Coast. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. What's on your mind? Uh, Well, first and foremost, I'm a SEIU member uh, and uh, leader in my union, uh, steward in training, and also uh, was a part of uh, Contract uh, contract action team on this my past negotiation just to give you a little bit of background on myself That's now awesome. yeah thanks for you thank you for your service yeah, yeah. i appreciate it in the class war not yeah not a problem <laughs> uh and then you know to uh something you know that that adam i believe brought up uh you know it's i i am called upon most of the time to um to do the membership asks for my um, new uh, new employee um, uh, orientation. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm the one within the presentation that goes into, uh, you know, how to sign up for the union and uh, make that ask. And I believe that when you, that that is one of the, the, the toughest uh, parts of, uh, you know, the whole spiel, uh, so to speak, because, you know, you are, you know, required to, you know, emphatically, you know, ask people to participate within, you know, our organization. And, and uh, I, I, I find that if you're not wholeheartedly within it, then, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tough to kind of get that draw. But, um, you know, on, on my, on my end, I feel, you know, as if that, you know, at the, at the current moment, uh, you know, just as I've seen within the past few years, and I've only been really majorly active within my union within the past few years um, because I saw the beginning of, you know, this labor uprising with, uh, you know, the Amazon, you know, the Amazon uh, warehouses, uh, you know, the um, uh, the warrior met, you know, struggle, uh, you know, the, you know, with the mine workers and all, it's been something that that's kind of shifted my paradigm and I, and I've, and I've come, come more into uh, an idea and the shift more so in my political paradigm based on this moment within unionism that I don't feel comfortable enough to call myself a leftist at the moment. I'm a unionist. Uh, I'm more so um, focused on uh, advancements 
um, within labor because I think when you follow the thread, you know, if you work, if you're uh, fighting for the working class, then it's only going to take you to in, in one toward one political direction. And I believe this is uh, something that's material that we can all get behind. And this kind of goes into my question: What what can we do uh, to either create more of an umbrella and a and a, and a sense uh, of a broader organization where we can get people to shift their view on the political nature of our system as it stands now to looking at the benefit, uh, looking at their own material benefit and, and, and being politically active to benefit their material conditions. Because I've spoken with individuals that are more uh, conservative and right-leaning and most of the time, I, I especially if they are active within within their own unions and within labor, you know they are more so you know labor you know they're they're, they're labor oriented they're, they're friendly towards labor they, they they understand the union but it's a cultural thing on the conservative side that that pushes them more pushes them more towards the conservative uh, you know parties of the conservative party so like where what can we do in essence like as far as maybe and, and the first organization and the first you know thing that comes to mind is the IWW and is, can we either you know have a reinvigoration of a broader solidarity and a broader organization within union which in turn would you know create better structures for these moments that we that we face within within these struggles like these strikes because let's face it individuals that are working class they are faced with, you know, economic downturn and severe economic downturn. And we can't lose sight of that. There's suffering that's going on that we don't see, that we don't hear, because that's what, that's not the, the things that, that are that are covered within media. We don't see the individuals that are unable to pay their mortgages right now. We're unable to see uh, individuals that are, you know, are, are scrambling to try to, you know, get food benefits or medical benefits because, you know, they're they're out of work essentially because they are making that 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 hard sacrifice on not crossing the picket line, and I believe that we need a broader organization, a broader network. And my idea, and the, the way I see it, is that community plays a big role in this. And more of us that are maybe not directly involved within the struggle go visit that picket line, see who needs what. How we can provide that, whether it's a case of water, whether it's some sack, sack lunches, or whether it's um, you know creating a GoFundMe because somebody is unable to pay their mortgage, or you know there's multiple individuals that are unable, unable to pay their mortgages. And I understand that there are strike funds, there are war chests out there, but some war, some war chests are bigger than others. You know, like if you have the Teamsters and the the UAW they're, they're going to have larger war chests but if we were talking about like smaller unions or unions that aren't you know fully established uh, and I'm thinking of you know like some of these uh, you know Starbucks workers some of these um, you know um, some of these em employment or uh, these service sector uh, employees uh, out in Los Angeles that have been on you know these rolling strikes for 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 months and months. You know, we, we need we need bigger infrastructure, and either I mean, and I, I'm not trust me, I'm not a crypto bro, <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a person that that's that's friendly for finance, but like 
you know, some type of pension trust fund, some type of mutual fund, you know, but it all boils down to like these, you know, the, the, the idea of, of, of a mutual aid network. And, and, you know, that's, that's where my thought is and my thinking is, and, and, and I just wanted to bring that, you know, across to y'all and see what you, what you had to think about that. All right. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll try to, we'll try to address that. And, uh, uh, to the best that we can. Yeah, uh, I appreciate, appreciate the, call, the call, Lenny, yeah. uh, and appreciate you tuning in. Um, yeah, I think I think I, I I really I resonate with that because um, I think there is that need for infrastructure and for organization and broader collaboration throughout the movement, um, and, and in a broader sense of the movement as a understanding like the working class and not just the unions. Right. Unions represent mm -hmm. one in 10 workers. What about the other nine in 10? Um, and so building a coalition there, I think, is really important and in, in establishing infrastructure. And, you know, this reminds me that I I'd been thinking recently about the need for some kind of solidarity fund um, that is out there to support workers as they organize, particularly these workers who don't have institutional support. Right. Um, you know, yeah, folks like those brave brothers and sisters at the Scottsboro Starbucks, Starbucks, who shut the store down, uh, you know, a few weekends ago. Um, folks like in unorganized workplaces who nonetheless do a walkout um, and who then lose their job. Um, they need support. You know, uh, we've got to be able to welcome workers as they express activity uh, and then support them in that activity. And... You know, I do think there's there's definitely room to grow the collaboration and building of like organizational infrastructure. Um, you know, and it's funny we we have a interview coming up in like a month or so uh, with an author of a book about the civil rights movement from a military strategy perspective. Um, and one of the things he he writes about is you know organizational strategy and mm. and, and how the movement. Uh, for example, in, in the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, had to create an actual organization that could coordinate logistics and raise funds and spend funds. And right. And so, um, you know, I think there's just a I, I think we're seeing the early moments of a potential like broad people's movement in this country. Um, and we're going to have to grow it and strengthen it and and be organized uh, and that includes having some infrastructure like that and coordinating mutual aid efforts. Um, and I think a, like an all of the above approach, you've got to have community organizing. You've got to have labor workplace organizing. Uh, you've got to have mutual aid. You've got to have research and education as part of your, your toolkit. Um, you know, electoral politics or, or you know, you got to participate to some degree on there, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But it's part of a toolkit and not the only tool. Um, but those are just some of my initial thoughts. Uh, but I yeah. really appreciate the, the call, Lenny. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, one thing, uh, obviously, you know, participate in your local labor council if you can, uh, help build it up, make it active, make it, you know, kind of real. Because that's definitely present. a space for that. Yeah, present in the community, and that's like an existing institution that is supposedly basically, you know, that's, you know, theoretically how it's supposed to function, right, is a lot of the things that you're talking about. You know, you mentioned the pension funds, and, and there are laws against using pension funds in kind of activist ways that we should be thinking about pulling back, which is not to say we should open up pension funds for basically, you know, 
uh, just organizing payments or strike payments or whatever, but we should be using pension funds in making you know socially conscious investments, like uh, not investing in companies that uh, union bust or you know things like that. That would be beneficial. And if you start talking about that, that's like. I think trillions of dollars uh, are in union pension funds that you can start swinging around. That would be very beneficial. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so I, I think those are, those are some, some, yeah, some of my initial thoughts there. Uh, appreciate the call. Thanks. Uh, one more group of Republicans. And so we've, we've basically gone on the Republican side from the, the most anti UAW stance in the strike to like clearly anti but not going out and saying that you know the big three should fire these people and permanently not necessarily committing an unfair labor practice yeah not committing not literally breaking the law uh so that's where nikki haley was and then this one this this next one on the republican side on the right wing kind of conservative side in the reaction to the strike is a veneer of support but as adam johnson i think a host of citations needed uh, rightly pointed out in the Real News Network, they're supporting a strike that does not exist. <laughs> uh, they are... Here's from that article that Adam Johnson wrote in the Real News Network. All of them, quote, support it, unquote, as an abstract thing in their head, yet they are throwing their backing behind a version of the strike that doesn't exist, and they offer no support for the actual demands of the strikers or the duly elected representatives of the UAW membership. What they're doing is pulling it away from a class war, a class struggle kind of rhetoric where Sean Fain has been calling out the billionaire class that Donald Trump is a part of as the problem, where Sean Fain has been saying, you know, a very clear list of demands. These right-wingers are saying, I support the auto workers. Notice they're not saying union. They're, they can't bring themselves to say union. I support the auto workers in their fight against Joe Biden, which is absolutely not what's happening. Here's what Rubio said in a tweet. Quote, auto strike is driven in large part by a radical climate agenda that seeks the end of gas powered cars, even if it means destroying American jobs. Instead of supporting either union bosses or CEOs, we need to support. And notice how... He says CEOs because that's like a nice word for these people. They think CEO, they think, oh, that's cool. But union bosses for the duly elected representatives of millions of working people, union bosses. Right. We need to support American workers who want policies that protect their jobs, value the dignity of their work, reduce their cost of living, and increases their pay. Okay, so uh, all of those things, obviously good, but not tying it to anything real and not acknowledging the reality of the struggle between the workers and the owners. The owners who are taking all of the value of the increased profitability over the last several decades and the workers who are creating that value. That's the struggle that exists. That's the struggle that Rubio refuses to acknowledge. Holly does a similar thing. Auto workers deserve a raise. How much? Who knows? A 20% raise is technically a raise. Is that enough for Josh Holly? He doesn't say. Auto workers deserve a raise, and they deserve to have their jobs protected from Joe Biden's stupid climate mandates that are destroying the U.S. auto industry and making China rich. And that is not the struggle here. The struggle 
is against the big three automakers who are refusing to uh, pay the workers <laughs> a, a fair share of the value that they're creating. Uh, further, even to the extent that there is conflict between the EV provisions that Joe Biden is pushing and the United Auto Workers, that conflict is very easily resolved, not by ditching the climate mandates, but by tying strong pro-labor strings to them, like uh, affirmative <coughs> union neutrality agreements. Absolutely. Uh, like higher wage protections, like... It's just straight up benefits for unionized workers, uh, benefits for pension packages, benefits for better training, all of this kind of stuff. You can actually tie it tangibly to the climate goals, and then it is no longer in uh, conflict at all with the UAW. Johnson uh, points out in the article... Holly doesn't actually support unions, i.e. the tangible worker-composed organizations that exist in reality right now fighting for material improvements for the very workers Holly claims to sympathize with. He only supports an idealized hard-hat-wearing archetype that exists as a branding reference. Holly continues with vague demands for a, quote, raise and, quote, better hours, unquote, but no specific numbers are mentioned. No mention of the 36% hike the union is demanding, which would commensurate with the raises of the big three executives have given themselves since the last contracts negotiated. A demand that accounts for skyrocketing auto industry profits, inflation, and rising costs of living, and the cuts and concessions the union suffered to keep the industry afloat during the Great Recession. The big three have all technically offered, quote, raises that are still well below the UAW's demands, and these meager wage increases would seemingly satisfy Holly's squishy line about workers deserving a raise. Holly's keeping everything deliberately vague because he doesn't want to upset the automakers that donate to his super PAC. And he, after all, has a shtick to maintain. And so, you know, that's kind of the thing. And Trump is doing the exact same thing. We played a clip for y'all a couple of weeks ago of Trump uh, lambasting Biden and actually attacking the UAW leadership, not supporting their demands, not being specific about anything. And he is supposedly planning a trip out to Michigan next week. I don't know if he's going to walk, uh, be on a picket line. Uh, I know that my understanding is the UAW is not cooperating with him at all in his visit. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, he's going to go. And if he does visit and if he does speak, I here's another thing that I would be willing to bet. You will not hear him mirror any of the demands that the UAW is making. You're going to hear him say platitudes and attack Joe Biden and tell auto workers to vote for him. That's the whole thing for him. And that is, you know, it's... I think it is good for unions to have a transactional relationship with politicians, okay? I think that we should absolutely be willing to use politicians for our ends and then allow politicians to use, uh, to use their support of us for their ends. As long as it is sincere and it's real and there's something meaningful coming out of it, okay? And, and, and for example... Jeff Sessions spoke at a rally to save TVA jobs, about 100 TVA jobs, including about 40 here in Huntsville, that were planning that, that uh, the CEO of TVA at the time, Jeff Lyash, wanted to outsource. The union was able to get Jeff Sessions on board fighting against the outsourcing, and he spoke at a rally. Okay? 
And so we were willing, <laughs> he was willing to be used by the union and the union was willing to be used by him as a sort of, you know, like, oh, look at me, I'm supporting the workers. Because he actually, actually mirrored and spoke in favor of the demands that the union was asking for, which was that the jobs not be outsourced. That is not what Trump or Ruby, Ruby or Holly are doing right now. They are being vague, they are not being specific, and in the same breath, they are attacking the union. That's not what Jeff Sessions did. Transactional relationships are fine and good with politicians, but they actually have to be meaningful transactions. That's kind of how I think about it. Anyways. So, the last thing that I have uh, is... The, uh, the reaction online to the UAW strike and, um, you know, and so basically the thesis of these people that I'm going to play is that, uh, the UAW is striking wrong. And so therefore should be listening to people with internet shows who are not members of unions about how to strike better. <laughs> and that's kind of the whole thesis, uh, which is amazing. Absolutely amazing, and uh, also amazing that they do not, you know, there's no, like, critical engagement with what's going on in the strike by from these people. And so let's just kind of go through it. The first, you know, there are basically two cruxes to the argument. The first is that, actually, the way that the UAW is striking contradicts the, the will of the membership. Because the membership voted to go on strike at all three facilities is what they're saying. That's what they're saying. And so that's a very big claim, right? That the UAW is actually blatantly violating a vote that the membership took. That's a huge claim. So we're going to get into that. And then the second is that just, just strategically it's bad. It is bad strategically. And how do they know this? Because they have internet shows. And so I don't know how you argue with that. I mean, that's a pretty compelling case, it seems to me. So let's start with the first one. Here is the revolutionary blackout network talking about how the UAW members voted on a strike. And uh, the revolutionary blackout network, for those of you who don't know, were formerly known as Fred Hampton leftists before Fred Hampton Jr. said, take my dad's name out of your mouth. <laughs> Which is very, a very, very funny thing to have happened. But uh, here, let's listen to them, uh, what they said about the strike vote. The membership have voted to strike, overwhelmingly voted to strike. But this strategy is everybody's not striking. So there we go. That's a pretty big claim, but he's kind of vague about it there. Uh, but later in the video, he allows Will Lehman to expand on this point. And now Will Lehman is a former president for UAW, uh, or a former candidate, a former candidate for UAW president. And his campaign was just a front for the World Socialist website, which is a notoriously anti-union, uh, tiny sect uh, that basically only have a presence online and when they parachute in their members to harass people on picket lines. Uh, that's what his campaign was. And so here is 
Lehman's explanation, uh, where he gets even more explicit and direct and, and you know, really like, well, this sounds bad if it's true. Let's play that. The decision of the UAW bureaucracy is not legitimate. It violates the will of the rank and file, which voted by 97% to strike at all three companies. So there we go. The membership voted 97% to strike at all three companies. Now, if that were true, if the UAW actually put forward a strike plan, a strategy to the membership, and the membership voted on it and voted for it overwhelmingly, and then the leadership behind the backs of the membership completely disregarded that plan and did something else, that would be like that would be a huge that would be scandalous and i would uh have some very big issues with that and i would publicly criticize that okay uh but that is not what happened <laughs> actually believe it or not uh these people are either lying about what the vote was or they do not understand the strike authorization vote what that was was not even a vote to strike it was a vote to authorize the bargaining committee to call a strike if necessary. There was not even, it was not even a vote to strike or not to strike. It was just a vote to empower the committee to call a strike if they felt like it was necessary to win a fair contract. That is what a strike authorization vote is. And so it is absolutely not. It is just factually incorrect and almost I would I would come close to saying defamatory because that's a like this is a knowable statement that they're making. It is knowable and it is not true. And seems to me to be malicious in some cases. Uh so that's just not what happened. There was no strike plan that was voted on by the membership. They authorized the committee to strike if necessary. Okay? And so the committee decided that it was necessary to strike. The committee decided that it was not necessary to strike at all facilities of the big three all at once. And then there is a weaker version of this argument, which states that, oh, well, people expected <coughs> the UAW to strike all facilities at all of the big three all at once. That's what people expected, even though nobody voted on that plan. And, uh... <laughs> And the union, the Sean Fain, never committed to that plan in the press or in any of his speeches or interviews or live streams. He never said he was going to strike all three, uh, all of the facilities at all of the big three all at once at as soon as he could. Never said that. That's just not something that he said. Uh, he said that all three were, quote, strike targets. He did not even commit to striking all big three. <laughs> any plants at all of the big three. He clearly left wide latitude for the committee to maneuver as it saw fit to maximize the leverage at the bargaining table, maximize the pressure on the automakers and minimize the hurt on the members. Clearly that's what he did. And now of course, this is not to say that there was not an expectation of a larger scale strike. Of course, there was a there was some amount of expectation for that. And I don't I wouldn't because I could I could see as I was engaging with this critically, you know, um, and, and, you know, like as a media person and as a union member, I was kind of engaging with his comments critically. And I could tell 
He was obviously leaving, I mean, purposely leaving open, uh, leaving the path open for different strategies. You know, I mean, that seems like an obvious thing to me, but I would not have been surprised if all big three, and I think I think probably I that's what I was imagining, is all big, all facilities that all the big three going on strike. Uh, but that's not what happened. And so, you know, there are two ways to deal with uh, <laughs> what you assumed happening not happening, right? And one way to deal with that is just to say, oh, uh, I was wrong <laughs> in my assumptions. <laughs> that, you know, uh, and another way is to try to divide the union and sow division and attack the leadership uh, for, you know, really no reason because you feel personally slighted. You as an outsider feel personally slighted that the union did not take action that you expected them to take. Right. I mean, there's to just totally a silly thing to. Sounds to like a you problem. Right. Yeah. And so then another thing that they would say is that in the chat, in the chat, there was some pushback to his strategy when he released it. And, you know, uh, obviously, surely, if you have any sort of bearing on reality at all, you've got to know that <laughs> online is not real life, <laughs> right? The reaction that something will get will elicit online is not the reaction that it is going to receive among the broad base of the membership. And I've always known that, but I learned that to an even greater degree during the UPS struggle because after the tentative agreement was announced, we had several, 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 several UPS Teamsters call in and say they're voting no. And even some, well, I think maybe one or two, using extremely strong language, language like sellout, like that I did not agree with. And then I, I, I pushed back on. But there were a lot of people that said they were voting no and, and that they wanted more and that they believed they could get more and they believed they had the leverage and all this kind of stuff. And I'm inclined to, you know, not disagree with that. Uh, and, you know, so I figured... I just assumed that I assumed that it was going to pass, but I assumed it was going to be much closer than it was. And in fact, 86% of the people that voted voted in favor of the tentative agreement. And more people voted in the referendum than have ever voted in a UPS contract referendum. So the reaction you're going to get online, totally disconnected, or very, very disconnected from the reaction of the broad base of the membership. You have to understand that. And then even then, there was still obviously a lot of support for Sean Fain in the chat as it, as the strategy was announced, and then even more so after that strategy was announced. I have not seen broad-scale pushback against the strategy except for, you know, uh, like people on YouTube who, like, want to get clicks and, you know, think that they know better than, you know, union members. And so that's been very, very, very frustrating for me. Um, and so... You know, but but look, so I do want to point out that even though this revolutionary blackout guy, he doesn't know this extremely simple thing about how the UAW goes about striking with reference to the strike authorization vote. He did do his research on the guy that he's basing his entire argument on, right? That he this is this is how he came to the idea that, oh, the UAW members, they voted to strike at all three facilities and now they're being betrayed by the leadership. He got that from Will Lehman. That's who he got it from. And so this guy, he did his research on the person that he was uh, uh, that he's referencing his entire argument on, uh, and and here is how he described Will Lehman. 
this auto worker for a 2022 candidate for the president and he got close. Um, but he's very militant. He got close. He got close. Did you know that, Adam? Did you realize that Will Lehman got close to beating Sean Fain? I miss that. I you know miss Somehow that I miss too. That. I miss that too. And so I said, wait a second. Am I just, like, did I just black out during the UAW presidential election? Like, did I just go into a coma and miss that whole thing where the front candidate for the World Scab website almost won the UAW presidency? Maybe I'm just, it's it's possible. Anything's possible, right? Right. Yeah. You could have had a blackout. Could have had a blackout. Could have revolutionary just, blackout. A revolutionary blackout. There you go. I, that could have happened. It's not impossible. So I said, maybe let's just go check. Let's just see what happened. Maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, so uh, Will Lehman uh, did not make it to the runoff, actually. Uh, so he was not among the top two vote getters uh, <laughs> in the election, which is what you have to you have to be among the top two vote getters to get into the runoff. So he was not in the top two. Uh, but, you know, maybe what he meant was that he was in the third. He almost made it to the runoff. Uh, and that's actually not what happened either. Uh, Will Lehman came in last place. Literally, there was not a single other <laughs> UAW presidential candidate that got fewer votes than Will Lehman. Not a single one. <laughs> he got less than 5% of the vote. Less than 5,000 votes. Didn't make it to the runoff. And this is the guy that the Revolutionary Blackout Network is leaning heavily on. And he said later in that clip that they lean heavily on WSWS for their labor coverage. So, you know, I mean, that explains why that explains why RBN's labor coverage is all is just so universally terrible. They don't know anything at all about labor, about labor law, about unions, about how they work. Nothing. They don't know anything. I, in fact, heard one, in one instance, they were attacking the PRO Act because it would make it more difficult for independent unions to win elections. The PRO Act, which that's the exact opposite of what it does. It makes it easier for any union to win a union election. I mean, it's just so, it's, it's bonkers. Totally bonkers. <clears throat> And so, okay, so here we go. I have, you know, I think, I hope for people that are watching this as a clip later who watch RBN, I hope that I have kind of shown you how this first leg of the argument is, is really silly. UAW members did not vote on a strike plan. They did not, that's, uh, and the leadership did not betray the will of the members. Okay. But so maybe maybe it doesn't contradict the members vote, but the strategy is wrong. And so and you should trust the YouTubers on this because they're experts about about uh, strike strategy, clearly. And so here is this guy. Uh, um, I forget the I forget the woman's name. She was a guest on this stream on do dissidents. Keaton Weiss, I think, is the guy's name, the host of the show. He got on a guest. And so here's uh, one of the things that, that, that they were saying about the UAW strategy. 
I mean, okay, to be fair, I am also not a labor organizer. I also don't generally cover a lot of labor stuff. Um, so I, I, I hate to, um, you know, criticize too harshly because I don't know the ins and outs of this as much as, uh, as this, obviously this guy does, but this seems real weak sauce. You know what I mean? This, this obviously should, in my opinion, this, why, why do these little targeted strikes? Why not just go full force straight at them, uh, hit them hard and get what you want. I mean, it seems really weak-willed to go in uh, uh, very piecemeal, very mealy-mouthed, very, oh, we're going to do, and it's not even uh, really all that strategic. It looks like the, the places that they're striking initially. So it seems, to me, it just seems like um, very counterproductive. I mean, why wouldn't you just go full force, get it, I mean, just get it all done. The longer you drag this out, the harder it is for everybody. So just go in all the way and uh, and hit them where it hurts. And it just, to me, it just seems like a real waste of time. But that's just my opinion. Well, it makes no sense to me on a number of levels. So there we go. Uh, all that preamble about how I don't know anything about unions, but I'm going to have a very strong opinion on this, <laughs> about how this is a terrible strategy. They expand on that later in the clip. Let's play this one. The UAW referred to its targeted strike of three plans as a stand-up strike, which it called a strategic, quote, new approach to walking off the job. As time goes on, more locals may be called on to stand up and join the strike, the union told members. This gives us maximum leverage and maximum flexibility in the fight to win a fair contract at each of the big three automakers. Again, explain to me how that's not gaslighting. Yeah. How does keeping the plants open and keeping the automakers profitable, how does that give you maximum leverage? Like, there's just no way. Like, I'd be very surprised if there's a way to make that make sense. No. It doesn't make any sense that, that this gives you no leverage. In fact, it does the opposite, in my opinion. It's gaslighting, and it does the opposite of give you leverage. It gives the companies leverage, is the translation of that, which that's kind of astounding to me, that you could shut down production at multiple plants, and that results in giving the company leverage. That's kind of bonkers to me. Uh <laughs> Is really, really wild. And Kashama Sawant echoed some of this. And now I will say, I they put out a clip on Twitter that was very inflammatory, in my view. But I watched the whole video. And in the context of the whole video, it's much, much more, it's much more mild. And so I don't have as much of a problem with it as the other stuff. Uh, you know, because in the, con the context of that video, of Kashama's video, is... You know, she's making the UAW's case. She's talking about the big three. She's talking about how, you know, she's really going through and making the case and, and talking about how it's important to stand in solidarity with the strike and that maybe there's a strategic... And she goes further in the saying of like, you know, there, you know, it's very possible that this could be fine, but, you know, we need to maintain, uh, you know, a critical eye towards the leadership and all of this kind of stuff. And so that's less objectionable to me than the other people who are really just kind of clearly talking out of their ass and they don't know anything and they have no interest in, like, not sowing division. Uh, and so Kashama is, is, is more, you know, she's more measured and more serious, it seems to me. But it just is... The thing about Kashama Sawant's criticism is, for me, is that she is wanting us to take her power analysis more seriously than the dedicated 
reform caucus backed leadership of the UAW, she's wanting us to trust the power analysis of somebody who gave up elected office in one of the largest cities in the country to do a podcast. Like that's kind of bonkers. I mean, you know, <laughs> the merits of the argument aside, that's just a, a bonkers situation to be in, to me. I'm going to give up elected office. I have more power than most state legislative representatives. One of the, one of the biggest cities in the country. And I'm going to give up elective office to do a YouTube show. That's bonkers. But here's, here's her clip. As the Associated Press reported, Marek Masters, a business professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, said, quote, the union didn't go after the company's big cash cows, which are full-size pickup trucks and big SUVs, and went more for plants that make vehicles with lower profit margins, end quote. So it appears that these are not strategic locations at all. And Masters goes on to speculate about the logic of the union leadership, saying, quote, they want to give the companies some space without putting them up against the wall. They are not putting them right into the corner. You put an animal in the corner and it's dangerous, end quote. But this is absolutely not how you win a strike, by letting the company off easy. This was not the strategy of the 1930s auto workers who backed the auto industry bosses against the wall in every way. That is how they won. In fact, it is dangerous for the workers and the union movement to give the bosses the room to maneuver and undermine the strike by allowing production and delivery to continue during the strike. So there we go. Like I said, and, and especially in the context of the video, much more measured and, and reasonable. But I, st I still would disagree with it, and I think she's kind of ahead of her skis there. But, you know, I have I, because she's held elective at office, and the rest of the video is much more measured. I have more respect for the argument. Um, and so what we're going to be responding to basically is a question of like, what is escalation? <laughs> is escalation good? Which, you know, when you put it like that, which is the question. What is escalation? What's going on here? Never heard of it before. You know, it seems it's pretty obvious, I think, the merits of it. Yeah, I mean, it's something you learn about in Organizing 101. Yeah, like literally the first or a union organizer classes you're ever going to take is going to talk about escalation and how it's valuable. Right. Um, and that's, that's just, that's the question that's being asked here. But it's, it's also worth asking, why do these people think that the leadership is selling out the members? Why is like that the first thing? They disagree with a strategy and the first thing that comes into their head is the leadership who, by the way, won a historic union election, the first ever, the first ever member elected president of the UAW after a years-long fight to get one member, one vote from a dedicated reform caucus. These people sold out the membership. That's the first thing that comes into the head. And Sabby answers that question. She's been on this same train too about the UAW thing. Um, and Sabby Sabs is the name of her YouTube channel, which I just, I feel so weird saying because it's such like an infantile kind of name for a YouTube channel. Her name is Sabrina Salvetti. Like, just call it that. I don't know. But I, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm like, I'm not cool. So 
that's fine. Uh, here's why she. Th this is kind of this is kind of the track that her mind is on. I told you a couple of days ago that their Democrat politicians have been infiltrating these unions and they're having meetings with these union bosses and the presidents and things like that. Next thing you know, they're not going on strike anymore. They're doing this rollout mini strike. So in addition to their network relying on WSWS for their labor coverage, right? I mean, like, yeah, it's not as if every single thing that they put out is terrible and bad, but if it's about labor, you can pretty much bet that it's bad. <laughs> That's kind of the thing. Uh, and they're also really weird about like, you know, sexual assault and for some reason really went to the wall for Harvey Weinstein, I think. Um, and, uh, and they're really going to the map for Russell Brand now, credibly accused of sexual assault. In addition to their network relying on them for their labor coverage, she is just, I mean, there's just a right-wing mindset about unions and about politics, even down to using the Democrat Party. Like, that is a right-wing thing to say the Democrat Party. And the utilization of the term union bosses. Again, directed at Sean Fain the first ever member elected president of the UAW, a union boss. That term is bandied about to make union leaders put them on the same plane as bosses who people feel antagonism towards, who are not elected, who are there by virtue of their ownership in a company not by virtue of members supporting them. It's totally, totally different and completely corporate right-wing propaganda to go around using the term union bosses. And this was, uh, this, uh, was echoed in an email exchange that I had with the due dissidence guy. I can't stand it when people are wrong online, and so, so I spend too much time trying to correct them, and that's kind of a silly thing for me to do. But I emailed the due dissidence guy, and he talked about this is why people don't trust union bosses. Like, when people come out with that kind of stuff, that's how you know that they're not engaging with the subject matter seriously. Because even the corrupt delegate elected UAW presidents, presidents, the ones who went to prison for corruption, and rightly so, and goodly so, they are still not on the same level as an actual boss employer who is there by virtue of his ownership in a company. Because the UAW president was previously elected by delegates who were elected by the members, either in their position as delegate or by virtue of their office in their local union. They're only one level removed from the membership. Even the corrupt union leaders, only one level removed from the membership. Just not the same. It's not the same. And if you're using the same kind of analysis, you are not doing yourself or your audience any favors. <clears throat> and you're not being serious. You're not being serious. And 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 uh, and and all of that to say, the criticism of the rhetoric this is not to say 
that unions do not sell out their membership or they are not too cozy with the Democratic Party. Very fair criticisms, Very worthy fair. criticisms, criticisms that we engage in on this yes. show on a regular basis. Um, but we do it without slipping into corporate Koch brother right wing propaganda. Right. And if you're serious about building a movement for working people, you would be able to do it too. Okay. So all of that out of the way. We've heard their arguments about the strategy. We've heard why they think that they're selling out the membership. Let's actually talk about the strategy. One obvious reason for not striking all at once is the strike fund. There's less than 11 weeks in the strike fund for all UAW members at all big three facilities. And we know that the GM strike lasted longer than that in 2019 at four months. So while the strike fund is big at almost a billion dollars, 820 million, I believe, it was built on the idea of picking one company as a strike target, not all three. That's been the tradition for decades, even back when the UAW was more militant. They only picked one company to strike as a strike target, and they would pattern agreements based on the agreement that they won with the first company. So that's how the strike fund was built. So you got to be careful with it. And that's not to say that you can't go on strike without a huge strike fund, without a strike check. People went on strike before strike funds. People went on strike before strike checks. In fact, we just talked to some Indonesian and Zambian unionists about how they go when they go on strike, they don't have strike pay. And how they thought that that was a very cool innovation of American unions is a strike fund. And so look, you know, people do it without it. But you need to respect people's lives and their livelihood and their well-being because working folks are not a means to satisfy a revolutionary fetish. And that's the kind of stuff that I see with this, why not? Why not just send every single member out on strike right now and then get what you want because it's that simple. Why not do that? I see revolutionary fetishism. The less pain you can inflict on workers is obviously better. And on that note, surely we can agree on two things. The first is that there was actually real doubt about whether there would even be a strike. So just a small strike is powerful in dispelling that notion that you are not willing to go on strike. Joe Biden was quoted in the press saying, I don't think there's going to be a strike. So there's huge propaganda value and material value in shutting down production at a few plants in going on a small scale strike. Because you're showing, look, we're willing and we're able and we have the solidarity to execute a successful strike at these locations. That in and of itself has huge value. Huge value. We got to agree on that, surely. Secondly, that marginal utility of the strike is going to decrease the more the people that go on strike. And surely this has to be acknowledged as well. Like there's got to be like a definitionally a spectrum of strike targets from ones that are going to be most detrimental to the company and the ones that are going to be least detrimental to the company. And so the more of these people that you get on strike, the less the marginal effect of the next group of workers going on strike is, okay? So... Surely we can agree on that. And with that in mind, why would you not use escalation? Because escalation is just like, that's, that's how campaigns are always done. And it, it builds power, right? 
one of the first things that you do in a union campaign is you get people to wear pins or sign a petition. If you listen to these people, they would say, why would you not all march on the boss? The very first thing that you do, you talk to somebody about a union one day and then all you march on the boss the next day and demand a raise and go on strike if you don't get it. Why not? Just hit them with everything you got and then take what's yours. It's super easy if you listen to these people tell it. But that's not how campaigns are done. That's not how you build power. You have to escalate. You have to start small and you escalate. So you get people to wear pins or sign a petition. That collective action builds confidence because they sign the petition, they wear a pin, and they see, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I wore a pin to work. I signed a petition. And they weren't able to retaliate against me because we were in solidarity. That builds confidence. And you can go to the next step. And seeing the people go on strike at these first facilities and not despairing is going to build confidence for the next round of workers that are going on strike. Obviously, obviously so. It has to be like almost definitional. And uh, it, it's just like it's I feel kind of almost silly kind of running through this because it just seems so obvious to me. And it gives them leverage to, it gives them flexibility and leverage. We talked about earlier in the show how Ford has shown significant movement, reinstating stating the COLA formula from 2009. That's huge, huge. The right to strike. Ford has given in this contract, in their latest offer, the right to strike over plant closures. These are all huge things that Ford is moving on. And they didn't even have to strike any other facilities yet. And so with that movement, the UAW has been able to reward Ford for their movement and punish GM and Stellantis because they have not moved as much. Flexibility is, is great and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and that's, that's when we start crossing over from the theoretical to what's happening in the real world. And in the real world, we can see that it's been effective. We have, we've had a week now to analyze the effects of the first round of the stand-up strike. The Intercept reported about the Big Three's confusion around it. In the run-up to the strike, UAW members at auto plants from Georgia to Tennessee to Ohio took to Facebook and Twitter to share accounts of partial plant closures and faulty information from plant managers, leading to chaos on shop floors across the country. Scott Holdison, a worker at the Ford Assembly plant in Chicago, told The Intercept that company bosses seemed to have no idea where planned strikes were going to take place. Quote, Our local plant management started emptying out vehicles from paint ovens and dip tanks. If they leave cars in there they get ruined so they start emptying those out and preparing to shut the ovens down so that's what was happening here because they thought our plant was going to be one that was called out the plant chairman was telling me that ours was one that was going to go on strike Holdison said that other automakers had transferred parts from plants elsewhere in the country, including one in Tennessee. At GM in Spring Hill, they loaded engines to send to Wentzville because they thought Spring Hill would be the target. Turns out Wentzville was the target that was struck, so there was a lot of disinformation out there that really put the company on their heels. Wasted money, wasted effort, psychological effect to losing to auto workers that you obviously have no respect for as a boss, as an executive of one of these companies. You've got the presumptive nominees of both parties climbing each other to visit your picket line. <laughs> I mean, that's never happened. I don't think in the history of the country, the sitting president of the United States for the first time ever planning to visit a picket line. I don't think that's ever happened. And this is with a small strike. 
The strategy also, like I said, got Ford to make major progress. It allowed UAW to reward Ford for the movement with no new strikes for now, while punishing GM and Stellantis for the lack of movement and showing Ford that more strikes are very much still on the table. And so, you know, I mean, I think that this is all seriously, I mean, I hope that I have explained to people that were maybe skeptical of the value of this. And obviously, can things happen? Yes. And a full-scale strike is still very much on the table. Sean Fain just said that. But um, there's absolutely no reason to be so critical that you are using terms like sellout and union boss and things like this. It's even one thing, like I said, I mean, look, I, f I have been much more respectful to Kashama's position because I feel like she's been more careful in it and all of this kind of stuff. I think that, you know, her actions from a power analysis standpoint kind of boggle my mind. But, you know, in isolation, her critique of this is more acceptable to me. It is less divisive. It's not what's going on with these other people. And, you know, a friend of the show, Connor Lewis, president of a labor council in Pennsylvania, said on Twitter, you know, I think people get hung up on woo, strike, raw, stick it to the boss and forget that it's purpose driven sticking it to the boss. You don't do it with like no reason and put people in jeopardy for no reason. You have a purpose behind it. And it seems to me that they're doing it with a purpose. Yeah, uh, you know, a couple of things I'll say about it. <clears throat> I think there's room for disagreement and there's room to, you know, have strategic disagreement, right? There's room to question whether this is the right strategy. Um, only time will tell, mm -hmm. right? Who knows? Um, you know, it's it's possible things turn differently. Um, that's fair. I mean, as long as we're having like good faith dialogue, right? And we're all in it for the workers, I think you can have room for disagreement and you can have room to, um, you know, have that tension. You know, there's always going to be contradictions and tensions between rank and file versus leadership, uh, just like a, there's tension between unions and the broader working class. Um, you know, I I think there's room for those tensions and it's like healthy to have dialogue and, and talk that stuff out as long as it's, you know, in good faith. And again, it all circles back to how can how are we moving things forward for working people um you know so there's folks who have principal disagreements and then there's folks who i think are acting in bad faith and you know mm -hmm. have have <clears throat> motives um and and those are on various sides right whether it's outsider commentator types or people who do make it into leadership because mm -hmm. um, i you know i do want to say like i reject the the right wing phrase union boss, I do recognize that there's a real, um, you know, there's a real phenomenon there that it, it's kind of referring to like, like a lot of good propaganda, right? There's kernels of truth, right? Right. And there, there can be no disagreement that we've had some leaders throughout the history of our labor movement who have been corrupt or who have been power hungry, uh, or who have been sellouts. Um, I've met some of these people. <laughs> right. I've been retaliated against by some of these people. I know who they are, and, and you know, certainly we can study them throughout history and see that. And 
and know that it's a problem. You know, it is a problem. And that's where we as members have to be engaged and really, uh, you know, prevent that kind of issue. But, yeah, I, I do reject the right wing phrasing of, of union boss. I think it is a concern. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just I do. I do reject the whole like being on the outside, not being very familiar with the situation, not being really knowledgeable about the situation and then like throwing around terms like sell out or, yeah. you know, I think it. You have to just, again, like, are you adding and multiplying your numbers? Are you subtracting and dividing? And, right. uh, you know, I think there are folks out there who divide and subtract intentionally, whether that's for profit, um, for attention, uh, because they are paid to do so by whoever you want to assume they're being paid by. Um I mean, let's not forget that there's a long history of wreckers in our movement, people who, are, for various reasons, intentionally wreck and disrupt and divide. Those people are out there. Some of them are on company payrolls. Some of them are on government payrolls. Some of them are just, you know, self-interested grifters. Um, and I'm not accusing anybody of, of that right now. I'm just saying that that phenomenon exists. And so those are things we have to be mindful of. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, worker solidarity is what it's all about. Solidarity is our greatest power. Um, and that is how we counteract the division, the division on along so many lines. They try to divide working people um, by race, by gender, by religion, by nationality, by geography by industry, by, you know, education levels. They try to divide working people. But at the end of the day, there's, you know, the owners and then there's the rest of us. And the rest of us are stronger when we come together. Yeah. So um, that's all I have to say about it. Uh, I think there's, you know, again, there's room for good faith dialogue, but there's not always uh, folks acting in good faith. And we can't assume yeah. everyone is. So, um I just yeah. appreciate all of those who are out there fighting the good fight, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, uh, whatever your your role is. You know, we all have a role to play. We all can participate in history. We can all make a difference and try to make this world a better place for working class people. Um, and there are all things that we can do. Every one of us has things that we can all do. Uh, and a lot of you listening are doing those things. And so I appreciate you. Um, and whether anyone else, you know, tells you, thank you, you know, you don't have to try, you don't have to spend your time and energy trying to make life better for working people. But if you're doing it, uh, it's really important that you are. And I appreciate you doing it because it's going to take all of us doing what we can so we can all get what we need. Yep. And apologies for going long, but I didn't want to have to revisit that <clears throat> next week. And uh, hopefully, probably not going to revisit it again for a little while. And uh, it would be nice to not feel like it was, you know, like it even needed to be done. But, you know, these people collectively, I mean, there are like, I mean, they have a bigger audience than we do. Um, and so I do want to have something pushing back against this out there, against like the bad faith, the bad faith criticism. I wanted to have something pushing back out there. Um, so, yeah. And, and then there's also like the Internet politics versus 
real life right. and um you know i've been active in real life organizing and activism for about a decade now here in north alabama in a very um hostile environment you might would say mm. uh to the sorts of things that i believe and sorts of things i'm trying to do and so i've been out here talking to folks and listening to folks all these years and that's not always the same as what happens on the internet yeah and um you know hey i get it folks want to put out products and uh you know become a commodity and you do you um but again i just ask like are you are you trying to make things better and I, that's one thing i want to say with this show is that you know we're always trying to make things better we're trying to grow the movement strengthen the movement are we always going to get it right no are you always going to agree no that's fine um but you know we're here to build working class power and to spread the message of solidarity um and that's what we're going to keep trying to do yep thanks for listening folks appreciate it that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Adam is going to be back with you Thursday morning for overtime. Gonna, We're still figuring what it's going to be out, I think. But, yeah, um, and uh, I was on America's Workforce yesterday, so check that out. Always enjoy talking with Flash. Uh, I got a chance to mention the Valley Labor Report, provide a TVLR update, um, and also got a chance to talk about IATSE, some news there, as well as Alabama Rise. So for one of the each each of the three hats I wear. There you uh, go. So that was pretty cool. I really enjoyed it. There you go. All right. Uh, did you have any plugs you wanted to get to before we wrap? Or you? I don't. Uh, I the only I thing I, I do want to remind folks that the AFL-CIO has that training coming mm. up. Um, uh, let me check the notes real quick to find out where, <laughs> when, and when that's going on. Um, that is going to be September 27th at 6 p.m. Central Time. AFL-CIO is doing a virtual training, How to Organize Perfect. Your Workplace. So definitely check that out. Um, what else did I want to mention? Uh, don't forget about that People's History of the Black Working Class workshop mm. that uh, historian Blair L.M. Kelly is doing with the Zen Education Project. That is Monday, October 16th. Um, I think that'll be really cool. Uh, Labor Notes, of course, has some great online trainings, and their September Stewards Workshop is dealing with difficult supervisors. I'm sure you've mm. never had to deal with a difficult supervisor, right? Uh, so if you're a steward or elected officer, that workshop is for you, and I highly recommend you check that out. Um, and again, I just want to thank everyone who tuned in, thank everyone who commented, called, uh, do appreciate it. Um, you know, thanks for, for your support. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and it means a lot. See you next week.